1: Check out Qualia NAD Plus risk-free for up to 100 days at neurohacker.com slash dave15 to save an extra 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash dave15, Qualia NAD Plus. It's what I use. What if there was a way to level up your energy, get rid of stress, and take more control of your body? Welcome to Quantum Upgrade. This is a new technology that taps into quantum energy to help you feel amazing. If you don't know what that means, do some research because it's impressive, it's fun to learn about, and it's something that I've come to understand. Ready to try Quantum Upgrade? Visit quantumupgrade.io Dave for a seven-day free trial. Today's cool fact of the day is that in a recent study, 19 baseball players from UC Riverside trained using a visual program for 25 minutes a day for only a month for 30 days. The basic idea was that they were gonna train their visual cortex to process information quicker and more clearly. What happened is that the players had less strikeouts and they created more runs and they were able to increase their overall visual acuity by 31%, which is kinda cool. I've done some of my own vision hacking and I'll be writing some stuff about that coming up here. The bottom line is that you can train yourself and train the lenses and the muscles in your eyes to focus better, I went from 2060 back down to 2015 in both eyes. And this is after having had LASIK many years ago. So it turns out you can really do things in a relative short amount of time just with the right exercises. So it's not like you should just be doing CrossFit for your arms, you should be doing CrossFit for your eyes. Everyone's talking about red light therapy beds and for good reason. There's a company called ARRC LED that's building an entirely new class of LED devices. Today's guest is Brian Rose, the creator and host of London Real, a weekly talk show exploring the human experience and challenging the status quo. He's also the guy who started Silicon Real, a show dedicated to the London tech startup scene. You guys may also know I've been on Brian Rose's show before, last time I was in London,
2: and Brian's just a cool dude. Brian, welcome to the show. Thanks, Dave. Thanks for having me. You know, this is, uh, I think, the second podcast I've ever done, so uh, you know, you're 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 lucky to have me. I don't do any media typically.
1: That's <laughs> because you're always on always on your own camera, right? <laughs> You've had some pretty some pretty amazing. I, I never has
2: so. to. Ha- yeah, I, I never have to uh, answer the hard questions. You know, I, I just I get to ask them, which is pretty easy. So uh, this should be fun. Well, you're kind of an interesting guy because you
1: live in the UK, but you're a Californian. You're also an MIT engineer by training. You've been a CFO at a New York startup and you've been uh, a banker, one of those 1% guys. You're into Brazilian jiu-jitsu, and you're basically kind of a crazy guy. Is, is that an accurate way of describing your career path?
2: I guess no one thinks that they're that interesting, but now that you give me that CV, <laughs> I guess it does sound uh, sound kind of peculiar to you. But, yeah, all that's true. Um, it's weird because, you know, London Real is uh, hosted by an American, so uh, it's <laughs> – it's a, it's kind of a weird thing, but I've been here for uh, 12 years now. I'm a a dual citizen. So I've got, you know, a passport British and and an American and uh, yeah, I'm here to stay. You know, a lot of Yanks, when they come over here, they kind of want to get back home sooner or later. But uh, I came here for finance um, originally, I think in 97 and then back for good in 2002. And uh, yeah, it's kind of morphed into, you know, now I guess I'm a, uh, talk show host I guess you would call me it's uh, it's hard to figure out what my role is but you know I have been a CFO uh, I was in the dot-com uh, bubble uh, in New York City in 1999 to 2002 and uh, yeah Brazilian jiu Jitsu black belt sorry purple belt black belt someday maybe uh, and uh, yeah, Silicon Reel is now uh, uh, the show about London technology startup scenes. So we've just shot our 42nd episode there. So uh, it's kind of like a mini London Reel, but just tech startups. But still, uh, we, we say it's about the people. So it's like uh, about the people behind the tech. So, uh, you know, it's busy over here. We do two shows a week just like you. You're a busy guy.
1: You know how hard it is to do two shows a week, but you do them live too. I record and then broadcast but just setting it up doing the research and all that i i find it it's a full-time job almost to do two shows how much of your week do you spend on you know podcasting not not just the actual act of talking like we're talking right now but it, you know going out there and just making your brain ready to ask intelligent questions you've had like richard branson on there is that right uh we didn't have
2: branson on uh, we've uh soon man had, soon yeah i mean we had you know neil degrasse tyson on recently yeah. so uh Peter Sage, you know if, like that Peter Sage, yeah. I mean, like Neil deGrasse Tyson was here, and then like a week later, he's posting a selfie with President Obama on his Twitter feed. So um, I'm like, okay, I guess I'm one degree of separation away from the White House. <laughs> um, but, you know, we've had some fun names, you know, like Tim Ferriss and, you know, Graham Hancock. And, and you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's weird because if you're a person, I can probably mention a guest that the, you'll care about, you know, because we probably had someone on that you'll find you know, really interesting, but, you know, uh, when when we first came out, we actually said um, to anyone in the world, if you want to start your own podcast, you know, you can call it Your City Reel, uh, we'll try to help you out, you know, just send me a pilot, and we got a bunch of people that started, there was a Melbourne Reel, there was a, a Midwest Reel that's still around, LA Reel, Limerick Reel, all these other reels, and uh, I think what people found hard after the first few weeks is just booking the guests and keeping it going, it takes a lot of time and a lot of prep, which I'm sure you know.
1: Yeah, Bulletproof has passed about 110, 115 episodes now, That's and it, it's it's a lot of work. But London Real, where are you guys in terms of we episodes?
2: We are so we're at 145 on wow. London Real, and yeah, I guess 42, 43 uh, on Silicon Real. So um, yeah, they just keep coming. I mean, I'll have a hundred people in this studio this year and i'll get to sit down and like really meet him and you know it's weird when you have a podcast with someone i think it's like knowing them maybe for like four weeks or going out with yeah. them maybe 10 times because i can meet a guy and then i sit him down on the show turn the cameras on and i can ask him the most intimate questions about himself <laughs> and he has to answer them you know yeah. and so we get this, you get this real bond and i i call it like um when the podcast is over, I turn the the cameras off and we end up having this conversation. And it's kind of like glow time. Like I'm not comparing this to like after sex, but it's kind of like (laughs) after the show, then you can have this real conversation where they're like, yeah, you know, this is what I think. And this is what I couldn't say on camera. And this is, and you know, you, you end up, you know, building some really important relationships. And I mean, you were here just, just under a year ago, you were here in May of last year. and um. You know, on the back of that, you know, we become partners and you know, big oh, yeah. fans of everything you guys are doing. And I, it's funny that all started really from the show. And you know, we probably would never have had that connection if you hadn't have been here in the studios and hung out with us, you know, for a couple hours. So
1: yeah, the the honesty, sort of the idea that you're just going to say things as they are, a lot of people didn't know it, but after. I finished the show with you. I was kind of wiped out. I'd been in London for a whole week. I was meeting eight or nine people a day, giving them like a one-hour talk, mostly investment bankers and guys like that. So I was coming off of like five days of intense, like literally have a meeting, run down the stairs, go to the next meeting, talk about Bulletproof Diet and mental performance for these guys with like lots and lots of zeros in their bank accounts. And it was just like rinse and repeat. So I was kind of thrashed. I was using a little bit of nicotine uh, as a lozenge and on Bulletproof Coffee and all this kind of stuff. And it's like, Man, uh, that's cool. So I, I was, I thought holding it together pretty well. I was a little tired, uh, but afterwards I remember we were chatting. And I'm like, man, all right, I, I think I'm about done because it was at the end of this crazy week. So yeah, you're right. You just say the things that you wouldn't have said on the air.
2: Oh. Yeah, it's it's a it's a real hour of honesty. I mean, people have said it before. You can't really fake you know, 90 minutes, because sooner yeah. or later, you know, you can script, you know, eight minutes or 15 minutes, especially if you edit something. But if you're here in my studio, I mean, I'm going to ask some, some hard questions and, yeah. you know, you get the essence of someone. So like, you know, your show, people people still watch your show. People still tweet me about your show. And uh, the shelf life of your show is is going to be years from now. People will be watching that. So uh, it's yeah. uh, it's a really interesting medium. I think we're only starting to understand it right now.
1: Well said. One of the things I wanted to ask you about, uh, you know, we on this show we have somewhere around uh, right over 5 million downloads uh, for Bulletproof Executive Radio. And a lot of times I'm talking about, you know, the latest in ketosis or, you know, butter or nutrition or human performance, but not as much about some of the career stuff. And you and I have something in common that we've both come from one industry. Um, in my case, tech In your case, uh, I guess tech and then banking and gone into like a totally different life, really, as podcast hosts and bloggers and sort of this weird online media thing. And a lot of people ask me, like, how did you do it? And there's like this huge overhang of people who want to do the same thing. So what was it like when you went from going banking to podcast hosts? Like, how did you do that? Like what what made it, it work? It was a uh-
2: yeah, it was pretty terrifying. So I was nine years at the same company here in London. It's it was called ICAP PLC. It's a it's a FTSE 100 company. And, you know, I was on the phone every day um, connecting different major banks. So I would close a deal between Goldman Sachs and JP Morgan uh, in a credit derivative instrument. And I would do, you know, 30, 40 of those a day. And it was kind of a 12 hour day. I would entertain guys at night. We'd go on weekends, and I mean, in retrospect, I could make it sound glamorous, but after a while, it gets kind of tough, and I went to the best restaurants house in London, and I went to the Monaco GP, and skiing and Verbier, and da-da-da-da-da, but at the end of the day, it wasn't very creative. I think a lot of people say that in, in finances, it's not very creative, and, and you know, as you work for a big company, it can be in any sector, after a while... You know, you're not being creative anymore. And I just had enough. I, I I when I told my clients I was leaving, I was like, I'm not really feeling this anymore. And one of my clients said, Brian, you haven't been feeling this for two years <laughs> 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 And I I was like, Really? It shows? You know, and, and you know, they know. I mean most people yeah. can tell. And I was just I was just phoning it in. I was dragging myself to work every day. So uh, you know, I quit. Um when I look at it in retrospect, it was actually about four or five months after I started meditating twice a day. And like, I don't know if that had something to do with it. I don't know if my subconscious brain was taking everything in, but I walked out of there and I really had no idea what I was gonna do. I was just completely, you know, done with the industry for a while. So. uh You know, I didn't plan on doing this, I didn't start doing this. Uh, About nine months later, um, my Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu instructor and I were hanging out during the day because no one else hangs out during the day except for martial arts (laughs) instructors and unemployed bankers. And um, I was listening to a lot of podcasts and we'd walk around the west end of London and we'd talk about philosophy or about girls or about health uh, or whatever. And we'd have a great conversation for two hours and I'd say, that would make a good podcast. And uh, I remember saying we should start a podcast, and he was like, yeah, let's do it, let's do it. And I was like, okay, as soon as I start a podcast, I have to finally tell people I'm not an ex-banker, I'm now a podcaster out of my house. And so I really had to get uh, my own self-dialogue, I had to get it in my head at one point just to go out and do it. And so we started the show October uh, uh, 2011, yeah.
1: Well, congrats. It, it's it been a successful transition for you. I mean, London Real has become, I think, a, a very respectable and respect-worthy podcast. So it, it's it's cool. And I love it, too, that you're in an international city. So you get all these guests. I'm up here on Vancouver Island, and I'd love to do some live stuff, but there aren't that many people who come up here except for, for vacation. So I'm in the process of building a biohacking facility. So I'll be able to lure good okay. guests up oh, here. Oh, up where you are. Oh, yeah. Uh, so oh, yeah. I'll be like yeah. come on over and we're going to hack the crap out of your brain and then we'll do a podcast so you know they'll have electrode glue left on their face no, it won't be that bad but I'm hoping I get some live guests but in yeah, the meantime it, Skype is awesome right?
2: Yeah Skype is awesome and you can get some great flow with Skype definitely um, but uh, I'm curious how you find it when you get people up there if you find the dynamic in the studio is different uh, and you can have both uh, obviously you know we've we've always done shows being with people live in the studio and like I remember the first Graham Hancock interview we did, it took us like five months to get him here, six months. And he lives in Bath, which is nearby, but he wanted to do it at his house, and then he wanted to do it on Skype. And we were a new show, and I, I kept having to say no. It has to be here. It has to be here. And but once he got here, he really opened up, you know, really well. So uh, so it's worked out well for us. But it, it you know we're lucky we're in London, so we yeah. do get flows of people, and we can also be lucky because if you're an American and you're coming to London then you're kind of out of your element. It's not like I'm competing against Fox and CNN and things. So when they're over here, it's kind of a novelty, and they'll be like, oh, yeah, we'll drop by London Real. So uh, it's been really lucky to be that kind of an international city, but it's hard. I mean, you know, the Midwest Reel is one of the shows that started kind of with our real name. They've done a fantastic job, but it's, it's hard. I mean, how many people are rolling through the Midwest on a regular basis? So
1: yeah, they don't call them the flyover states for no reason. No offense, my friends in the flyover states. Yes. Yeah. So I've had two guests come up to my, my house up here. Uh, Abel James came up, Uh, from Fat Burning Man and uh, Chris Ryan, the guy who wrote Sex at Dawn, a book about evolution and and polyamory and things like that. And, you know, I prefer hanging out with people live because you get that nice like post-interview discussion and you really get to connect. Uh, So I prefer to do it live. And, you know, if people are going to be up in, you know, sunny Victoria, especially during summer, um, who should be guests, man, I'm I'm always game for doing that. I just have a, a camera guy come out but part of that too is, you know, you've got a whole studio, and I don't have a studio right now. I'm working on making more of one. So. Well, if if you have that biohacking facility, you can lure people up there. It's probably gonna, you might be able
2: to lure me over there. With it's
1: gonna that be things. cool. I'm I'm actually really excited. So I'm I'm working on making that a reality. Give me give me another few months, and I should be able to uh, give people a reason to come up here.
2: Well, no. you, you guys aren't slowing down, man. I mean. Uh, it's it's funny because some people asked me the other day. Someone said uh, asked me about Bulletproof, and they're like, "Yeah, that's that coffee company." And I was like, "You know what? They're a lot more than a coffee company. <laughs> uh, there's a lot going on over there, and uh, it's uh it's just you know, you guys have so many new things, new products, podcasts, all this crazy stuff coming out. So uh, I don't know. It's been a lot of fun to be kind of a part of it over the last you know what, twelve months or so.
1: I I appreciate it. you
2: know the way you uh, you demo the coffee for for
1: people and all, and, and it, it's cool, it is more than coffee, and it's a human performance is, is what I'm most interested in, largely for my own sake, <laughs> and also I like to help others. Uh, so if it helps you perform better, it's something that I'm going to be interested in, but it also kind of confuses people because they're like, wait, how is there a relationship between whole body vibration, uh, you know, brain hacking equipment that sticks to your head, and coffee, I'm like, no, there's a common thread in there, it's just not one you probably thought about before. Uh, So it it seems to be working, helping people. This company wouldn't exist if it wasn't for the Internet, because like in what single place would you find people who are like looking at all these different angles? But there's a community, a pretty strong one of people who really are dedicated, not just to like feel good self-improvement, but like quantitative, measurable stuff like that. And all right, well, you're one of those guys. So what is your next thing? Like, how are you going to grow and develop professionally or personally coming up next? Like, how does biohacking fit into all that?
2: Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I, I you know, I, I guess I'm pretty new to biohacking. You know, I, I mentioned that that meditation piece about three years ago. I mean, I've been training, you know, for a long time as far as martial arts and kind of fitness for maybe 10 years, but I wouldn't call that biohacking. I was, I was experimenting yeah. with my diet, but I, I wasn't doing, like, very specific uh, changes and, trying to get that feedback loop. So, you know, I started the meditation about three years ago. I've been on Bulletproof now for about a year as far as the coffee. Um, and I've been doing a lot of sleep hacking pieces on the back of what you guys have done and, and speaking with, uh, you know, Zach Garcia, your, your head of marketing. And, you know, he put me in touch with the sleep cycle app and now I'm using uh, the sleep induction mat every night. And so, (laughs) yeah, I love that thing. I was on it last night and um, <laughs> it's, uh, we did a, a sleep hacking video, uh, with my, uh, uh my, uh, uh, stepdaughter and my girlfriend and, and, uh, you know, my, my 10 year old tracks her sleep at night and my, I do and my girlfriend. So three people are tracking our sleep on our iPhones every night, you know, and, and, uh, she, the, the little one loves it. I mean, she's always comparing her percentage to mine and, you know, she sleeps 11 hours. So she always gets like 96%. That's like cheating, you know, it's yeah, like stuffing it's totally, a box. She, I told her that. I'm like, this, this is a total fix, but she wasn't, she wasn't feeling that. So, uh, but, uh, and people really like that stuff. And so I, I've been really enjoying the sleep hacking. Uh, I, uh, you know, based on, on the the ayahuasca I did a couple years ago, I kind of went gluten-free on the back of that. And so I've been kind of trending toward a lot of your bulletproof diet stuff. But uh, every time I hear different things you're doing, you know, I, I, uh, I think more about that and, uh, you know, incorporating, you know, different pieces of choosing the right foods, and uh, you know, I, I've read your Better Baby book, and like you know, all these different things. You know, Zach tells me he takes uh, uh, your uh, brain octane oil to the sushi restaurant with him instead of soy, and he puts uh, a sea salts on that or, or a yeah. uh, Himalayan salt. So like little things like that. Yeah, I think I taught
1: him those things, and
2: yeah. And, but it's <laughs> like the lifestyle tweaks. you are like, wait, what was the difference
1: in the quality of my consciousness from putting on this stuff that contains excitatory uh, neurotransmitters? The the soy sauce as well as actually quite a lot of histamine usually so you're like did i feel differently when i had this really good piece of sushi that now tasted more like sushi or more like soy sauce i would have never thought there was a difference but there was um, so you've yeah. gotten
2: into that right yeah i've gotten very much into that and uh, i kind of want to keep expanding i yeah. just feel like i'm getting a little bit better i think it helps with age i think uh I, I, I wish I'd started earlier. I mean, I wish I'd started in my 20s. Um, there's a lot of recklessness, as I remember, yeah. in my mid-20s, you know. Well, what but you
1: can I, remember of your mid-20s, you're saying? <laughs> yeah,
2: I just remember, I don't know if I was trying to, uh, to push my body to the limits, or if I was trying to some days uh, kill myself, or I don't know what I was trying to do, but I don't remember thinking about ways I would biohack myself, but I believe if the information was out there, I would have trended toward it a bit sooner, you know, maybe by the time I was 30, as opposed yeah. to by the time I was 40. Uh, I know you've talked about that before, too. I think it's just something, uh, it's interesting. Like my 10 year old, I mean, she's thinking about her sleep now. So, like, what's that going to do to her in her teens and 20s when, wait, I mean, she now knows that eight hours of sleep is important. It's like, I don't know, these are big steps, I think. Or gluten free, she's now thinking about gluten in her diet. So, you know, it's a big. It's a gift to give that to a kid,
1: you know. And but how did you go from ayahuasca to gluten? And I mean, just so people were listening, know ayahuasca is a hallucinogen that's used as a sacrament with uh, shamanic medical traditions, it's a pretty strong hallucinogen uh, related to DMT, which is the active ingredient in it, just in, if you're getting caught up on that. And just in the interest of full disclosure, um, I've done ayahuasca in a shamanic ceremony in South America about a decade ago, and it does tend oh, to wow. do things to you. Oh, yeah.
2: Yeah, I think I missed asking you that on the, when you were here, and I, I, I read it in your bio later, and I was like, I was like, damn, I missed that. Uh, You'd be surprised how many people have done it. Um, I mean, I had Dorian Yates here who was the six-time Mr. Olympia, Uh, almost one of our biggest episodes ever. It's been viewed almost 300,000 times. Wow. And uh, and an hour through the show, he's blowing my mind when, when he talks about, I mean, let's be honest, his own biohacking yeah. to become Mr. Olympia. You know, whether, I mean, he's, you know, he said he would never go out past 11 at night. Obviously, his sleep, his diet, his training, everything. And then he's like, oh, yeah, I, I went on an ayahuasca ceremony in Brazil. And I was like, Dorian Yates is in my house talking about ayahuasca. <laughs> Uh, so, and you'd be surprised. I've had other people tell me off camera, you know, that they've, they've done it and they're going to do it. So, uh, it's interesting, but typically people go to Peru and do it. It's a, it's a brew that's been used there for, I think they've proved, um, thousands of years based on some archeological evidence. But, uh, you know, it's something that we did early on, on London real. Um, and it was controversial. I mean, to be honest, Dave, I, when I, before I did that episode, I was like, uh, am I ever going to be allowed back in the banking world if I want to go? You know, it was like one of those pieces where I was like, okay, is the financial services authority going to be like, eh, you know, am I burning bridges? But like ultimately we had to do it and uh, we did the ceremony in the UK and we were quite open about it. We did it before and after and, and it was to date one of our best episodes. I think people really like to see when you put yourself out there and, uh, but part of the the ceremony was going on a diet and the diet was really restrictive and, uh, Part of that was gluten free, uh, sugar free, caffeine free, uh, alcohol free, drug free, spice free. I mean, it's pretty yeah. limiting. Um, I, you know, I, I, do, I, I think it might be a bit of an extreme case, but it was great to do for ten days as a test. And then uh, once you drink the ayahuasca, uh, you come out of it. Part of you, part of you tells you that I don't know. Maybe you should stay away from from those grains. And it was weird, Dave. Uh, I could have gone right back on it, but. Since then I've really steered clear of it and I've been a much happier person since. So with
1: with biofeedback with the kind of internal awareness that you get from using ayahuasca in a ceremonial, you know, spiritual context not as a recreational drug which it's not. <laughs> but no. if if you develop that sort of self-awareness, uh, some of that goes into the bulletproof diet. Like people are always complaining like, "Dave, why do you say no garlic in the bulletproof diet?" I'm like, "Well, there's some historical precedent for it, but" I can see it on an EEG, what it does to my brainwaves, but as someone who's learned to achieve some advanced zen states from 40 years of zen and all that, my brain won't do what I can normally do with it when I eat garlic. It's just like that. So garlic's a powerful medicinal herb and we should use it in, in such a way, but if you're medicating with it every single day, you might be missing out on some of the nuances of what your consciousness can do. And I don't necessarily want to be restrictive the way a shaman would be, but what I'd like to do is map out, Look. How much mental clarity and focus do you want? Let's move your diet in this direction. Maybe you don't go all the way here. You might just, like, be in the middle. But at least you have a direction. You have a roadmap to follow. And you want to address inflammation. You want to do all these things. So I, I was intrigued when I first learned, you know, the dietary recommendations that come from practices like Jainism and things out of India, things out of Tibet, and then things out of the shamanic things happening in South America. And there's some interesting common overlapping threads around, you know, over agitating the body, which affects the mind. So I'm impressed that you picked up on the gluten thing as a result of using ayahuasca. That's pretty cool.
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, from what I understand, you're all about feedback. I mean, yeah. that's, that's what you've done. I mean, I know from your early days, you, the feedback was, uh, you know, when I drink this coffee, I feel ill. <laughs> when I eat gluten, I mean, I know you're very sensitive to these things. And so. I mean, that's kind of why we're even talking about Bulletproof is because you you managed to identify these sensitivities you had. And so there's so much going on in our subconscious about, well, everything around us we're, we're looking at and then obviously ingesting. And so it is about that feedback. And you might not be able to explain maybe today why a specific substance makes you do something. But if, if the feedback is there... You know, And if you said thousands of years of multiple traditions around the world have tended to trend in the same way, then we can probably get some information from that and kind of act on it. And the, the ayahuasca, I mean, I, I have a scientific mind. I have a mechanical engineering degree from MIT. I was taught if it's not on the paper, then it, <laughs> and then, you know, if it's not science and proven, then it can't happen. But, you know, I'm here to say that I just avoided a lot of foods after that ayahuasca ceremony, and gluten was one of them, and you know certain you know, pork products and other meats that just didn't feel very clean, uh, I've avoided as well. And, and uh, I don't know. There's something there, <laughs> even yeah. though I can't explain it. That, that says a lot. It's actually
1: harder for engineers to do that at a certain point, for me, I just realized, okay, I'm doing all the, quote, hard science things that should result in, in my case, weight loss and, and other things like that, and I'm like, they're just not working. And that was kind of a scary thing, because like, I, I followed the rules, I did what science says I should do, and it turns out the science was, was accurate, but the assumptions behind the science were wrong. You know, In my case, the assumption that the calorie in equals you know, X amount of weight gained and this sort of calories in, calories out thing, that assumption was wrong, and that is not the way to sustainably gain or lose weight. You can certainly in, induce a famine, but it doesn't work as a long-term lifestyle. In fact, it's highly destructive. So it, it's it's fascinating when you take those things, and you deconstruct the assumptions, and you figure out what happened. And it sounds like ayahuasca for you might have have changed some of you know some of your assumptions. Which the first was it has to be on paper, and when you were done with it, you're like, I have to feel it and see it on paper. It, am I reading that right, or you're just more, I have to feel it and hopefully see it on paper?
2: Yeah, no, I I think that's true, and I I, I think it's kind of both. I think part of me just kind of uh, was repulsed by the certain of the foods, and then as I research a bit more and look past, I mean, you have to remember, I grew up in the 70s. My mom gave me skim milk. In oh, me California! Too. Oh, yeah! And so, yeah, you too. And so, it was all about low fat, non fat, and all this whole, you know, mantra of kind of the 70s and maybe the 80s. And so, we look back on that now, and you know, it's well, especially from the bulletproof diet, it looks ridiculous. And uh, and so, like, you know, now I, I might not understand why I'm staying away from these foods, but you know, we're getting more information now. You publish a lot of that on your site, um, and we'll probably have some more in the future. Um, but it's just, oh, yeah. once I've lived through one of these diet cycles, and, and we've seen them all, whether it's Atkins or Paleo or this or that, you, know, you kind of see as a society, we kind of necessarily kind of get on the bandwagon. So um, I, mean, I guess you're a contrarian kind of in what you're doing, but you probably feel very good about it based on your research, right?
1: I'm a contrarian, although it's becoming more mainstream, you know, Sweden is, yeah. just changed their recommendations. So now, oh, you should eat a high saturated fat diet, sorry, we were wrong. So when, when things like that happen, I'm like, I like to think that I'm a thought leader there, but I'm also sure, my email signature says, I guarantee that something I've said on my website's wrong and not, I don't know what it is, I'm saying all the things that I know to be true to the very best of my ability and the ones that are super scientifically rigorous, I'd call those out, the ones where it's like like garlic. like There's a whole lot of hints and there's a lot of observation there and there's an EEG experience with more than just my head. I'm like, okay, it's good enough for me to make that recommendation, but if you love garlic, just do it. So it's it's one of those things where there's always going to be improvements in our knowledge and in our practice. And there's the whole genetic thing coming in. I just wish when I was you know, 20 that someone had told me all this stuff because I was 300 pounds and unhealthy and my brain wasn't working. And I was angry all the time and all that stuff. And I, literally, that's the whole reason I'm writing this is like maybe if like a couple people read it, it would help them. And then they could avoid all the crap that I went through. So like it's kind of a win no matter what from my perspective, if 10 people read the blog.
2: Let me ask you a question, I mean, you live in America, I'm over here in the UK, but you know, we, we read about the obesity issues and Americans' health, and you know, right now, the, you know, the equivalent of you has all this information from where you were, say, 10 years ago, or 12 years, or 15 years ago. That People have all this information, but will they use it? You know, will they act upon it, or do you find that the trend is kind of going the other way? Well, I, I live
1: in Canada. And I travel to the U.S. all the time. You know, I have people down there and, and I do my work in, in the U.S. So people always have access to more information than they're going to act on. In fact, if, if you looked around me and you could see all the crap stacked up here, biohacking stuff, I have this new um, temperature control, cold control glove. It's been sitting here for like a month and I haven't had a chance to play with it. But I'd like to be like, you know, putting my, my hand in ice water with a Uh, basically a way to turn my temperature down on my body pretty heavily before I go to sleep. It's like an athletic recovery thing, but I want to use it for sleep hacking. I just don't have time. And I have over here like an exercise prescription for basically changing the balance between the hemispheres of my brain. And I'm supposed to be like turning off my right eye and changing my sensory input on my right nostril and then doing things with my left hand, okay? Honestly, I know that I would probably benefit from that. I just don't have the, I don't even want to say I don't have the time. I just have a lot of stuff and I'm gonna pick and choose. The goal behind the recommendations I'm making on the site is I'm trying to identify the lowest hanging fruit so that when people, if, if you have five minutes to spend on doing something good for yourself, what would you do, and how would you stack rank it? So if you had six minutes, what do you fill the next minute with? And that is a big challenge, and some of it's personalized, but even the diet itself, it's, it's a spectrum right? So, okay, don't eat perfectly, but you had a choice between squeeze margarine and coconut oil. Well, I'm pretty sure coconut oil was a better choice. And if you like them both, and it didn't cost you anything to choose one versus the other, just having the knowledge of which one is superior is going to change the quality of your day. So it's building it in, so it's painless. That's kind of the challenge for me. And that's where I'm trying to take the Bulletproof blog. So people can just go, oh,
2: that's just an obvious move. I'll make that. That makes sense. Yeah, no, it totally makes sense. I was wondering, like, when I think about a bulletproof coffee, it seems like the the, the Trojan horse. Um, and and I, I was wondering if this was by design. I'm guessing it wasn't. But it's funny because if you tell people about biohacking in a general sense, they might start to go to sleep. But if you say, try this coffee that tastes, you know, uh, brilliant as we would say in the UK. <laughs> and uh, you know, I serve it here on the show pretty much to every single guest, and I'm at 100%. Like, I'm at 100% approval rating. People are like, this tastes awesome. And this is when I make it in my kitchen. I put butter in there and I show them the MCT oil and I get some funny looks from people. They're like, um, are you sure? But you know, once they taste it, they're in. So I was just curious if, if you ever thought that that would be maybe the Trojan horse to get people, because once they taste something that makes them feel good and it tastes good, it seems like it would open their mind to explore other pieces of hacking their bio and so i guess i'm asking was that always a plan with you or was it kind of a well <laughs> i don't know serendipitous
1: the the goal for calling bulletproofing the state of high performance is that i really want people to just once experience how how well their brain can work how good they can feel how much energy they can have there's lots of ways to do that uh, i'm working with um, uh, the Flow Genome Project on on a couple of things right now. So there's, you know, you could try an extreme sport. There's all these different things. But if you want to really reliably put someone in that, wow, I'm liberated from food cravings and I just got this massive, like my brain works for the first time, stacking the stuff the way I designed it in, in Bulletproof Coffee, where you've got the different lipids and you've recreated these micelles and you've done these things, you've eliminated the, the toxins that are common in coffee that have an anti-effect compared to what you want. Just getting them to feel that one like precious moment of clarity, like, oh my God, that's what I want. And that turns on the desire for biohacking because you want to feel that way every single day. And it's not like being high or something. It's just like, I feel like I'm fully myself and all of my faculties are there. And that's it. It just like I would use electricity. I would use electromagnetic frequencies or color therapy or anything else. This is just the fastest way I know of to be like there. That's how you're supposed to feel. Now what are you gonna do to feel like that all the time?
2: So it just works. It just seems, it it is the the one thing you can do in an instant to get people to, I guess, understand what you're talking about as far as their own personal performance and potential biohacking.
1: That's what it's there for. And there's a lot going on from a biochemical perspective when they get the grass-fed butter and when they get the additional energy in the brain that comes from burning fat, even though they're still consuming carbohydrates and the way we're blending it and the fact that it's these MCTs and really with the brain octane oil, it's even not MCT oil, it's just one of the oils out of coconut. But it has that strong brain-boosting effect and they're like, not only am I thinking really fast, I got my work done, but I wasn't tempted by the bagel. In fact, uh, one of my friends in the UK, she was like, so such a food craver that she didn't have any food in her house. And she'd go out down the street to Tesco and like get one of the little pre-made meals they have. And she'd go to work and she'd like know all the candy drawers so she could go and get a piece of candy. And she tried bulletproof coffee while I was there for the first time. And she's like, I went all day and I didn't have any candy. Like like it was a whole different world for her because her biology was so just primed for that. So for her, it was the experience of no food cravings, like owning her life, that, that happened in a day. And so I just want people to feel that state, where like, wow, like what do I do with all this? Because when you start asking yourself that question, you're gonna be like, nicer with people around you. That, that was kind of what was behind it. And when I started making it, I'm like, I want coffee that makes me feel like this all the time. What's wrong with other coffee? Why do I feel like a zombie some days? So there's a lot of biohacking there, but it's an interesting question.
2: Yeah, it's when you talk about that like not craving sweets f- effect is another thing which I don't even know if you can quantify the science that makes it not happen. But it's funny because like I, I it's like you, you don't even notice some of the things that you're doing differently. Like she obviously noticed because she could probably watch herself all the time picking up those sweets. But you know, I think it's a lot like meditation, a bunch of these other things is that you know doing them you know makes you behave in a, in a much better way. You just don't always you're not always able to quantify exactly what it is.
1: It's like that with smart drugs, too, and I I first learned this with paracetam a long time ago. This is one of the very safe smart drugs I've been taking for a long time. And I took it, and I'm like, paracetam doesn't work. like like It's no good, so I stopped taking it. And then the next day, I'm like, I had to think of a word. It didn't come to me automatically, and I realized my memory wasn't (laughs) quite where I wanted it. And then I took the drugs again and I realized when things work, it feels so natural that it's not obvious. Like, oh yeah, this is how I'm supposed to be feeling. So you'll notice a degradation in performance more easily than you'll notice feeling like you're supposed to be feeling all the time because it's just so natural. So once you get used to being in the bulletproof state of high performance, you're like, okay, this is how it is, and when you're not in it, you're like, that's irritating. I had to stop and think, and I didn't have the endurance I expected, I couldn't stay awake whatever else my focus drifted because that just doesn't happen i'll tell you if i can't find a word i'm digging and it doesn't come to me automatically i make note of that because that means i did something wrong in the previous 24 hours because especially coming from where i used to be cognitively i'm amazed to always have access to that my memory i o works all the time if not it's a bug it's a glitch
2: and there's something wrong and it can be hacked right Right. I mean, it's weird when humans experiment on themselves because, like, by definition, you know, we're, we're, you know, we taint the experimental result. And I was wondering if you, after all these years, are pretty good at monitoring your own, you know, well-being, memory, all these little pieces. Or do you sometimes get it wrong? Or do you sometimes have to use, like, a device, whether it's your heartbeat or a temperature feedback or something, to make sure you, you know, notice reactions when you try to hack yourself? I use devices whenever it's possible and convenient. That's, that's the purest form
1: scientifically, right? It is the purest form scientifically, but there are some things we don't know how to measure. Like take heart yeah. rate variability, which is something that you've done as well, right after yeah. we talked yeah. about it and all. So yeah. heart rate variability, there's an algorithm. And someone had to figure out that it's useful to know the spacing between your heartbeats and to map the spacing of the last heartbeat with the one before it and to compare those. So there's math in there. That's why they call it heart math, right? The the problem is before that math, you could also sit and do the breathing exercises and practice uh, forgiveness or, or open heart meditation. You could feel it in your body and you could know when you're doing it. It was just, it took years of teaching to do it. So meditation going back to the Buddhists and all that is really the art of becoming your own biohacking instrument where you don't have to have external sensors. It's just easier and faster with sensors because when the sensor beeps, And you're like, oh, that beep corresponds with a twitch in my left shoulder. Like, wait, that twitch in my left shoulder is correlated with the brain state. So this is a reliable indicator. So I found that my own awareness went up very rapidly when I did 40 years of Zen and heart rate variability training, other forms of neurofeedback and all these things much more rapidly than they would have if I just sat and meditated and did yoga, which I've also spent a lot of time doing.
2: Would you, I know you've done the 40 uh, years of Zen, and we could, we could probably talk an hour just about that, but I was wondering if you found any correlations between, say, ayahuasca ceremony, 40 years of Zen, and maybe, like, heavy meditation over, like, a year or two?
1: There's huge correlations. Uh, 40 years of Zen, uh, for people who are not familiar with that, it's uh, eight-channel EEG neurofeedback done over the course of a week that teaches you to put your brain in the same state as someone who's done... 20 to 40 years of daily Zen practice. And it's correlated with increases in intelligence and creativity and focus. Uh, I've been through five and a half weeks of this training and I've about to do another week of it. I bring some of my clients through it. I can tell you I've had more hallucinations with neurofeedback in 40 years of Zen than I have on ayahuasca or DMT uh, or um, psychedelic <laughs> mushrooms used uh, in a spiritual ceremony. So I, I'm not a super heavy, you know, psychedelics every weekend kind of guy. Um, I don't know anyone that does that. (laughs) uh, Yeah, you have to be really kind of messed up for that, but you know, once a year in the right setting with the right intent, I think can be beneficial. And there's actually really good evidence for uh, ayahuasca and even more so for medicinal psychedelic mushrooms where they treat PTSD and they do some other things that are really cool. So not being, you know, hey, let's all get high at all from that perspective. I've had more progress from holotropic breathing, which is another hallucinogenic thing without drugs, and from 40 years of Zen than I have from ayahuasca or DMT or mushrooms, but I think they're all valuable. And even sitting in a dark room for 10 days in Vipassana, we're all circling the same basic truths and the same basic knowledge and self-awareness. There are many paths to get there, but I think there's definitely some relationships and some correlations there. What's your take? I mean, you've done a lot of meditation, you do martial arts, you've done ayahuasca. I mean, it's almost like I could ask you the same.
2: Yeah, no, it's an interesting point you make. I think also you've probably trained your mind over the many, many years to where when you go into 40 years of Zen, you know, you're you're ready to go to different places and you can relax your mind to go to these places where I would say a a newbie or a first timer, uh, I'm sure they would have some breakthroughs, but maybe not from the the, uh, the hallucination standpoint, but maybe so. Um, you know, all the experts that I've had on the show, whether it comes to, you know, Graham Hancock or people on DMT or psilocybin and all of the the smart guys, uh, even Tim Ferriss does what he calls an ego reset every yeah. year where he goes and takes a large dose of psilocybin. And uh, he's been talking about that for years. And, um, he's a cool dude. All the... He's a cool dude. Yeah, he was great when he was on here. And uh, I know you guys are in in touch. And, uh, you know, he was saying that before it was, you know, something being popular to be said. And so all the people I know, including myself, you know, it's something that you go, you take a look at what's going on, you try to get some lessons. Uh, You know, I I think any more than every three or six months, uh, I wouldn't even understand it. I think it's too much information to process. It's probably after you do 40 years of Zen, you want to come back and then you know, observe and process all of that kind of new information and then just see how your own subconscious mind and self is changing because a lot of times you don't even know what you've learned and, uh, and it's applying that. I, I find sometimes with psychedelics, People can get really caught up in this in this new world, or these visions, or these speaking with aliens. But you know, ultimately, you know, ultimately, we all live in this world, in yeah. this quote-unquote real world, and we all have to, to deal with each other in this world. And so, I think you have to bring those lessons back here. Um, I think psychedelics can be great, especially for people that have no idea that they even have a consciousness. Yeah. You know, they have no idea that everything is just a signal. And it's nice to just perturb it, as uh, you know, Terence McKenna would say, or Graham Hancock, to where once you perturb it, you know that you're in something, kind of like a fish doesn't know what water is, um, and like you don't know what your conscious is until you give it a bit of a twang. Uh, and then maybe you can start looking at things differently and starting to understand that maybe you're not in charge of your brain. you know, Maybe you're not in charge of everything you think you're in charge of. And I think that's a bit of what biohacking is as well. I think biohacking, in a way, is saying, wait a second, you know, my, my body and my mind might be doing its own thing yeah. that I'm not completely aware of, so let me just do these things. Let me meditate, let me eat this, let me do that. And then oh, all of a sudden, wow, it's great. For, uh, I can now control things so much better. And so uh, it's kind of all interrelated. And I ask a lot of people here, uh, whether they're health people or you know, business professionals or guys that preach success, you know, I, I, sooner or later I ask them if they have touched psychedelics because there is something about questioning your own, you know, being or your own wants and desires that, you know, ultimately is related to consciousness. So uh, it's been a theme of our show, but by no means what we're about. So
1: it's, it's interesting that we have that in common. And so many of the high performers I know, uh, if I'm just willing to drop a hint about either smart drugs or hallucinogenic stuff, um, they're willing to talk about it. About wow, in the very early days of LinkedIn, I was one of the first Silicon Valley guys to to embrace that, and I put modafinil and yoga and meditation in my my LinkedIn description,
0: uh, which you just that.
1: wouldn't do back then, right? And all of a sudden, people start opening up. So I think it it kind of takes a certain set of balls to ask a guest on the show like, do you use hallucinogens? You know, what what benefits have you gotten?
2: It's it's cool. It's like being in the it's, – it's, it's kind of the psychedelic closet, you know, and it's it's really weird. And, I, uh, you know, we've had a lot of people on the show, and it's like, well, what can people do? Should they ask their politicians to legalize this, legalize that? Most people say, you know, the biggest thing is to come out of that closet. So, you know, whether that means that you talk openly about smart drugs, mm-hmm. which is something you did early on, something Tim Ferriss was quite open yeah. about when he was on the show, and uh, or just to come out. You know, we've had the UFC fighter in here, Dan Hardy. And he was openly talking about his ayahuasca experiences, mushroom experiences. And and afterwards I was like, Dan, like, what are you doing? I mean, like, he's a commentator now for the UFC. I mean, he, you know, he's in international shows over here. And I, and that was a year ago. And, and he's like, Brian, you know, he's like, I got, I have to be honest about everything. He's like, that's the way I've found the best experiences. I've met the best people. So he's like, I'm just going to be open about this. And so uh, the more you see people doing that, I just think we get, Bigger and bigger. But there is the occasional guest that doesn't want to go on record because yeah. you know there are still some stigmas to it. And it might take away from their message, you know, yeah. if they start you know mentioning that something else is involved. So uh There's
1: also a, there's also some risks too. I think some people are concerned. I I know a lot of people will use solution gyms recreationally. I, I think that's outright dangerous. And I've seen people harm themselves that way. So it's like you know, if you're too enthusiastic about it, especially for you know younger people, I, I think you you really can do some core damage that requires a lot of repair if you're not careful. So there's that that kind of precautionary thing, like let's talk about it, but maybe not overly encourage it because it is a dangerous thing, even though it's a very beneficial thing too.
2: Yeah, and I think I'd probably just like I. I I, I'm lucky or, you know, I, I, I'm a bit restricted here because I get all these people that come through that have thought long and hard about these things and written books, yeah. so they're usually not those people. But something Dan Hardy said when he was here is that he's like, in Vegas, I get a lot of people that are, are serial DMT smokers, and they've done it like a 100 times. I mean, like for the record, I've smoked DMT once. It's our biggest episode ever for some weird reason. Over 300,000 people watch it on YouTube. But I did it once, and that was enough. But you know, Dan was alarmed. He's like, these people do it a hundred times, and they're really trying to get to this place. And so, yeah, th- there's something there uh, to be concerned about, and uh, and that's a whole another question. You know, whether we, you know, restrict that. I think it's a great conversation to have, and so people know that it's something to think about. Um, but I, I never understood that side. But I never got into this until I was a bit older. So
1: yeah, that, that's a big difference. You know, if I'd have been doing it when I was 16, I don't know that it would have been a positive thing. But you know, maybe it would have. Yeah. Who knows? Well, we're coming up on the end of the show, Brian, and I'm going to do something that I haven't done before on on the show. I always ask, you what are your top three recommendations for performing better and being more bulletproof and kicking more ass? But I'm going to turn it around on you because you've got some questions that you ask at the end of your own show on London Real. So first one, if you could make a phone call to the 20 year old you, (laughs) what advice would you give?
2: Oh man, I, was, I wasn't sure if you were going to hit me with this. It's uh, it's funny because like I don't I I rarely th- even think about the answer to that. Yeah. But if you don't know, that's a question I pretty much ask every guest here. Right, on that's Hill. why
1: that's why I'm doing it to you.
2: Yeah, and Dave's <laughs> turning it around, but you know it's uh, you know the 20 year old Brian was a, a sophomore, a, a junior at MIT. He was in a fraternity. He was uh, you know studying really hard. You know I I was I I, I was having a good time, but you know, it was, I was about getting that 5.0 GPA or a 4.9. And I was like, I had to get everything right. And I was looking at a career in wall street afterwards. And I was like super motivated. I was really intense. And, um, quite honestly, I was really selfish too, in in retrospect. And I think my first 10 years, I, I, to a certain extent, I was trying to put a square peg into a round hole. And I was, uh, I, I, I need to get out of my own way sometimes. And, uh, also, I think I needed to give a bit more. And um, and so it's something we do now. It's like the first thing I do, like when I met you, it was like, Dave, come on the show and let's do a show about you. And like, I get this great reaction from you because you're like, wow, I love these guys. And so, like, I wish I had done that sooner. I wish I had just thought, Brian, a couple things, two things. First of all... Um, you know, take it down a notch and maybe just try to get out of your own way because you're doing all the right things, but then you're, you're ripping yourself down like here and there. And the second thing is, is try to help some other people and try to give a little back because, you know, humans respond to that energy. And uh, you know, we had a, a guy on here by the name of Adam Grant and he was the, he's the youngest tenured professor at Wharton uh, Business School at UPenn and he has a book oh, called Wharton, Give and Take. My alma mater. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, is it really? Oh, fantastic. He's a really cool guy. And he has a book called Give and Take. And he said, uh, you know, you can classify everyone into givers or takers or matchers. And that are people that always kind of match up favors. And, and anyone who's a giver hates a taker. And, and you've met a taker before in your life oh, yeah. and we've met takers and like, no one wants a taker because they just, you know, they want what everything they can get out of you and they want to move on. And, uh, I got to think that maybe I was a bit of a taker when I was younger and I, I, I just think that uh, I got a lot of that negative energy back at me, and, and and I got where I wanted to go, but I think it was just much harder. So, I think that's the advice I would give to the 20 year old. And I definitely would not have taken that advice at 20. So <laughs> Thus the rub. Same. I would have told him. Yeah, I would have told me to fuck right off and yeah, <laughs> damn hippies. <laughs> shut, shut up, old
1: man. That's what I would say. <laughs> well, what's yeah. the best advice you ever have received? Another question you ask
2: people wow that is another one and you're really hitting me cold here with this stuff <laughs> uh you know the best advice i've ever received i am trying to think if i have like an, an epiphany you know uh to be yourself or anything you know i think some of the best advice i've received and this is a weird way of putting it but uh you know i i grew up uh with my uh my both of my grandparents were uh farmers and ranchers in say colorado arizona and these these guys like grew up basically uh, working the fields or working the ranch and like there was no option uh, to quit. And I remember I interviewed my dad, which was like the precursor to London Real like three or four years ago. And I interviewed him uh, one time just with some cameras and um, I said to him, I was like, dad, uh, you know, did you ever think about quitting? Cause he went to Caltech when he was younger and he got really horrible grades and almost flunked out. And I was like, did you ever think about quitting? And he's like, Brian on the farm, you don't quit. Cause if you quit, you die, you literally die. <laughs> And so I think I grew up around these grandparents and then these parents where they never told me you can't quit, but like it was in their DNA never to quit. So like you would never ever consider quitting. And so I think we just grew up uh, watching these like hard old men, grandparents, like the hard farmer's hands and like nice guys, but it was never in their DNA to quit. And so I think I got that message uh, subconsciously. You know, and which is for a young kid like me, that's the only way I could have got that message. Cause if you would have sat me down and told me that, I would have told you to fuck off. So, so, uh, in a weird way, that's probably the best advice I've
1: ever gotten. That is an amazing answer, Brian. And, and you must know <laughs> the last, the last question I'm going to ask you before the end of the show. <laughs> for young people watching, what advice would you give them if they want to not have a soulless career and then go off and be a <laughs> podcast host?
2: that's a great question. It's funny, when I left finance, I was like, oh, finance is the devil and it's the horrible thing and and all these kinds of things. And now that I I do this show, you know, now Silicon Real, and so I talk with with startups every week. And some of these guys, you know, have three employees. I mean, you know, Instagram had 15 people when it was sold for a billion Mm dollars. And so you, you get these companies where they scale so fast that you get three guys out of college are making these big companies. And so I still think there's real value in kind of going a traditional route and, you know, going and working for a big company and and earning your stripes and being told what to do and not liking it. And I remember when I had my first week on wall street, man, I got into this trading floor and there was 300 people on this floor and it was just a big intimidation place. It was like, you know, I'm gonna sell the, these bonds and I can sell more bonds than you and my cock is bigger than you and everyone was dressed in a really pretty suit and they were swearing like sailors. And <laughs> like, like, I didn't know what to make of it because no one ever taught me this at MIT. No one ever talked about posturing and politics and it was really hard to deal with and it was just ego crushing on a regular basis. And I saw people dressing other people down and yelling and, and but it was a great maturing process for me because I, I got tough. And I got to know when someone was gaming you in the head. And so now it's really hard for people to kind of intimidate me on that level. Or even if a guest challenges me and calls me out, I'm like, okay, it's, you know, I get it. So I think there is something for going that traditional route. And so I don't think there's anything wrong with going to university, getting out of your hometown, getting away from mom, because it gets you out of your comfort zone, go work for a big company, you know, go, go pay your dues a bit. But then after that, I, I think open your mind a little bit and, uh, and go see what's out there and then go try to create something and build it yourself. So uh, I guess that's my advice to people out there. You know, I do think starting your own thing, whether it's a blog or a podcast or, you know, even a business on the side, you know, you're going to learn so much. And I've learned so much on this show. I've transformed, like, notably, my own persona has transformed so much just by having people over to a studio and asking them questions every week. So, uh, uh, it's been great for me, and if you can learn something from that, then, uh, then God bless.
1: Amazing answers to your own questions. And for young people listening, double down on that last answer. I would not be where I am today if I hadn't had some kind of unpleasant jobs where I got beaten down a few times and learned a lot from people who've spent 30 years learning. Uh, That whole mentoring thing or apprenticeship thing that Robert Green likes to talk about in mastery, it it really comes down to that. Like, I I know a lot of things I know because I worked for some amazing people who imparted their knowledge and wisdom on me, even if I was resistant to it. (laughs) So, uh, your answer is spot on. And I I wish I had understood the importance of what I was going through when I was younger. Um, Because, like you said, like, like you learned a lot that way. So, it's not that you want to avoid a career, so you want to wring every drop of knowledge you can from people who have a lot of experience, and that that's at least as valuable as your salary. And that sets you up to go off and do your own thing when you're ready.
2: I, yeah, and you, can, you can't get that from a blog. You know, you, uh, you have to be in there taking the hard hits, and yeah, uh, yeah. so uh, no, well said. I, I'm sure I could ask you a lot more questions about you, but um, thanks for asking me those, David. I, my, the London Real community is gonna love you for asking those things. Put me on the spot.
1: Uh, no problem, man, I've had a few people do that to me. I'm like, it's finally my turn to put someone else on the spot, so it, it's cool. <laughs> Hey, Brian, I'm a fan of your show. I love what you're doing there. I'm jealous that you get to have all these people live versus on Skype. And I'm really looking forward to the next time I'm in London. I'll be sure to stop by the studio and we'll do it again.
2: Yeah, I'd love to have you, Dave. I um, just want to say, big fans of everything you guys are doing at, at Bulletproof. Uh, your team is awesome. Like everyone I talk to, and I've talked to a big chunk of your team, so positive, such cool energy. Like they really feel like they're doing a higher mission, and you guys are. You're making the world a better place. You know, people go to your website and it's like free information, like rafts of it. And so it's like that. I think you guys are paying it forward like we try to do, like put out all this great information and then that's what you do first. So, uh, yeah, big fans of you guys. And, um, you know, it's all good. Thanks for having me on, Dave, and uh, definitely come back when you're in London.
1: You got it, Brian. People, when you're listening to this, if you want to check out Brian's podcast, LondonReal.com. Got that right? Or is it.co.uk .co.uk? I can never... Uh,
2: LondonReal.tv. Uh, okay. uh, but you know, if you type in London Real on, on YouTube or uh, iTunes or whatever, you'll find us. Beautiful.
1: Brian, thanks, man.
2: Uh, Dave, as we say, it's about the journey. Peace to you.
1: If you're looking for a way to know which foods are making you weak, check out the free app that we just released called Bulletproof Food Sense. It works by using the phone camera in order to get a measurement of your heart rate, or you can just type in your heart rate if you know what it is from some other monitoring device. You do this before a meal and you do it after a meal a couple times, and based on changes in your heart rate, the application can help you to identify which foods are causing an immune response in your body. Based on that, you can choose to avoid those foods, and you'll find a huge boost in your performance, just from not eating the foods that you have sensitivities to. You'll also find that you can lose weight much more easily when you're not eating foods that cause you to feel foggy and inflamed all the time. This app is free. It's called Bulletproof Food Sense and it's available on the iPhone Store. You can also take a step further. Check out Bulletproof HRV Sense, that stands for Heart Rate Variability Sense. Bulletproof HRV Sense goes a step beyond food sense, and it works with a wireless heart rate monitor that goes around your chest. You wear the heart rate monitor, and it'll talk to your iPhone or your tablet, and it'll show you your stress levels throughout the day, and it'll help you know whether you're overtrained, overstressed, or even just help you know which meetings are causing the most stress in your nervous system so you can learn to take control of that stress. This is an awesome app. So number one, Bulletproof Food Sense is free, and number two, Bulletproof HRV Sense is a few dollars, and it makes
0: a huge difference in how you manage and control your stress.